0: So many of us are seeking better ways to help our teams succeed from any location. In this episode, three key invitations backed by research that will help you engage your remote teams. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 537.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So much of leadership, especially now in the world we live in, is about how do we lead well, not only in person, but how do we do it well in a remote and virtual context, Today's guest is going to help us to do an even better job of engaging our teams, employees, uh, the folks that are important for us to be able to do our work in a way that is genuine and also sustainable. I'm so glad to welcome Sadal Neely to the show today. She is a professor at the Harvard Business School. Her work focuses on how leaders can scale their organizations by developing and implementing global and digital strategies. She regularly advises top leaders who are embarking on virtual work and large-scale change that involves global expansion, digital transformation, and becoming more agile. She has published extensively in leading scholarly and practitioner-oriented outlets, and her work has been widely covered in media outlets such as the BBC, CNN, Financial Times, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and The Economist. She was named to the Thinker's 50 on the radar list for making lasting contributions to management and is the recipient of many other awards and honors for her teaching and research. She is the author of Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere. Sadal, so glad to meet you. Thanks for being here today.
1: I'm so excited to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, uh, the pleasure is mine. And as I was uh, thinking about our conversation, and of course, uh, all that we have all navigated around COVID uh, and the pandemic, a lot has changed, but also some things haven't changed. And there are some mindsets that I know many leaders have really thought about remote work over the years. That you know, some of them are helpful, but some of them for us aren't helpful. And I think maybe exploring a few of them would be helpful. Of just looking at where the research is and. One of the things that I have heard from a lot of leaders in the past, and I still hear now, even you know, during slash post-pandemic, is that people will work less and work less productively if we let them work virtually. And I know people have lots of opinions on this, but I'm really curious what the research shows on this question of productivity and working remotely. The
1: research on this is unequivocal and unambiguous remote work increases productivity on average. And the reason for this is it's not because people are plugging in more hours when they're working remotely, although sometimes they are. The reason for it is people value their autonomy. They value their flexibility. They value when they're empowered and they can segment their day in ways that make sense, including creating overlap times for their collaboration efforts. That's the reason we see an increase in productivity employees' job satisfaction is higher. And the data on this is uh, dates back some 30 years, when Cisco first started to experiment with remote and hybrid work in 1993 and saw a rise in productivity. Then microsystems, Sun Microsystems, uh, later acquired by Oracle, experimented and were blown away to see such a rise in productivity to the point where they ended up, in 10 years, reducing producing a $500 million worth of real estate. And from there, you've seen so many other companies around the world who've experimented with uh, virtuality and remote work with similar results. And if you want to ask, well, are these all just uh, for profit, private companies? Governmental uh, organizations have experimented with remote and hybrid work and have seen increases in their productivity. So it's unequivocal, and many people have also experienced it uh, during these COVID periods.
0: It's so interesting how, even though that research has been so consistent for so many decades now, really, when you think about it, and yet mm-hmm. there is still this perception and, and fear, I think, from a lot of leaders and organizations. Um, when you work with leaders to help them to maybe look at the data and the research, of uh, what if anything do you find is helpful to perhaps help people to start to see some of the data and, and and that they're not likely to go down the path where it is going to be we're going off a cliff or we're losing control or 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 destroying productivity
1: you know the the fear the paranoia is that how can i lead people or lead an organization where I don't see them on a regular basis? How do I make sure that Culture goes inside of them, right? That they can integrate a culture. That culture building takes place. How do we make sure that people learn the the question around the questions around virtual onboarding are nonstop. I hear that question constantly. How do you onboard people virtually where they can learn who we are, our identity, our cultures, and learn uh, how to work with others? People worry about that, but ultimately, it's. The fear of loss of control. When we think about work and workers as being present and we can see them, kind of the butts and seats scenario. Uh, Leaders and managers feel more confident in their own abilities to uh, lead and manage. But when you have a distributed workforce and a hybrid workforce where there's a mix of people who may be physically present, those others uh, who are remote, who need to dial in, people feel like they don't know how to easily manage and control work and performance. All or nothing is easy. Hybrid, which is the gray zone, is scary that's yeah. where this um, uh, problem lies,
0: but but that fear you mentioned leads into something else that leapt out at me when I was reading the book about some of the practices that some organizations and leaders are are using around surveillance software and systems and the the message I got looking at the book and also just thinking about anecdotally hearing about stories over the years of people who who've who've been part of this is people really despise <laughs> these surveillance yes. systems and and services for those who find themselves in a place where maybe they've done some of that or they're thinking about that what do you tend to advise for how to think about you know using something like that
1: well first and foremost it's important to have full empathy around the experience that you're giving your employees when you're bringing in software or apps uh, that tracks them. And the word that I hear from people who are subjected to these surveillance uh, software or services, by the way, they call them awareness technologies. It sounds a little nicer, Mm -hmm. awareness technologies, but the term is humiliating. People say they feel humiliated and even infantilized when they're being monitored. And so, why would you want? employees at any level of your organization who feel humiliated by the technology and the actions that you're taking. And the workers also say when uh, times are good, meaning job and security is not at the forefront of their minds, they will leave those organizations. So ultimately, you've humiliated people and they're going to leave, move on once you've implemented these Uh, surveillance software and services. So I think it's a mistake to rely on them in order to lead and manage. You have to up your leadership repertoire and skills and learn how to lead people that you don't see every day, grounded on outcomes, not in detailed processes and management, grounded on trust, this is the key thing with remote and hybrid work. We must trust people. We confer trust. We equip people. We empower people. We coach people to do better if we're concerned about performance. But micromanagement or any type of surveillance activities will backfire. And this is what we've learned from the data.
0: I can. I guess I can get to a place where I can see philosophically how a person or organization could say okay want to monitor people I, I don't agree with that by the way I'm in your campus at all but uh, but I could see where someone could get there philosophically but on a practical level even if you're there philosophically it just it just sounds like a recipe for backfiring on you like even if you want to do that like the the results and the research seem really clear on this that going down that route is just such a such a bad decision on so many levels I, I'm sure there are exceptions somewhere but boy, it just does not seem like a helpful thing to do.
1: It doesn't. uh, And the thing about it is the managers who may use these softwares don't always think that I'm mon- monitoring people, the clicks and the the movements. Uh, at times, it's maybe by putting these systems in, we will always be present together with each other. Uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It hasn't been effective. But yet at the same time, we have seen an explosion in uh, the sales of uh, these systems, my question is, as we are entering an era where the war for talent is going to be fierce, a labor market that's going to be fierce, how will uh, the organizations and leaders fare who've relied on these systems? It's 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 a question that we will see answers to Sooner or later,
0: yeah, indeed, and it seems likely sooner, given everything going on with the economy and so much change happening, um, and the tight labor market at the time we're recording this. Um, it, it, something you said a minute ago, I loved, which is the invitation of this is an opportunity for us to up our game <laughs> from a leadership standpoint. Instead of relying on a software or awareness technology or what or whatever, is let's let's instead use this as an opportunity to do better as leaders. And one of the reasons. I wanted to talk to you as I just, I love that you really carve out in the book, you know, a lot of work on specifically how leaders, we can do a better job at engaging remotely. And in particular, there's there's three areas that you really invite leaders to to look at and to move in on in order to engage better. And I think that's something that has come up a lot as I think about conversations in the last year is, how do I engage better in a remote environment? And one of the things that you invite us to do is something you call structuring unstructured time for informal interactions. What is so important about structuring unstructured time?
1: Structuring unstructured time is incredibly important in an environment where we can't easily hold water cooler conversations or cappuccino conversations, or if you're in England, tea kettle conversations, where the informal engagements ultimately help and shape our relationships with one another and they help and shape our work as well. So, in a remote or distributed environment, you don't have the occasion to have these because we we're not. Going to have these serendipitous encounters. So, what you do is you actually deliberately set the times in these micro moments throughout your interactions with your group, with your team, with your stakeholders to connect informally before the formal business begins. So, for example, consider a one-hour meeting. Say you have a one-hour meeting, 60 minutes. Structuring unstructured time would mean that you would take six, seven minutes at the top of your meeting time, which is about 10% of the time, and actually have informal conversation. You can check in. Different teams and groups do them differently. It could be, this is our sharing period period let's go round robin everyone tell us how you're doing today or what's going on where you are today in your context it could be inviting people to use second communication channels like the chat functions in these various video tools to chat in what's the one adjective adjective to describe how you're doing today mm. it's just revealing how People are experiencing their world, their lives at that moment, and it really helps with the social lubrication that's needed for the formal work. You continue to get to know one another. You continue to uh, see people and uh, where they are, but yet you're not doing it for an extensive period of time. Now, what we've learned is that people from different cultures experience structuring, unstructured times differently. In the U.S., it's like, wait a minute, you want me to take six, seven minutes in my one-hour meeting to just chit-chat? That's <laughs> like a waste. In Latin America, the Middle East, people say, that's not enough time. We're friends now. We need 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. But you have to push people to be disciplined about this. And so the comfort levels differ. But once people get into the habit of doing this, that becomes their favorite part of their coming together, their meetings.
0: I'm so glad you said that because I've been part of a regular meeting of a group that meets every month with some colleagues, and we set a while back of the first five or 10 minutes are going to be just chit-chat, checking in. And I remember when we first right. decided that, it wasn't my suggestion. I had the thought, the, the typical US mindset you just described, like... Gosh, you know, we only have this amount of time once a month. like it seems kind of like a waste and And the funny <laughs> thing is, is now, after having done it for a while i I would never have us go back to where we just start on the agenda. That is sometimes the most enjoyable part of the meeting, and often it does lead then to later parts when we're talking more business or organizational type things those connections often then provide the framework for then deeper conversation later. And and I, I think that leads me to something else that I, I get the sense that's really at the heart of this message too, is the invitation I think you make for leaders to initiate it yourself, right?
1: Absolutely. You initiate it, you label it, you name it, you participate in it, you model it. And- in the end, people will really begin to crave that aspect of uh, your time together. And it has to be leader-led and leader-modeled. And it's actually magical. We've looked at distributed teams that don't do this versus distributed teams that do do this. And what we find is that there's an increase in team cohesion when you do this structured, unstructured time, which ultimately leads to better performance. So it really helps the bottom line when you do this. It's really important to do. And one more thing about this, the number one thing that people want to know about or learn about during these unstructured times is typically to learn more about their leader's personal side. So some self-disclosure there becomes part of a leadership imperative in a distributed environment or hybrid environment
0: huh fascinating i i know some leaders struggle with that a bit of on one hand like gosh i you know i don't want this to be about me i don't necessarily want to talk about personal things and then some people go the exact opposite direction they they want to share everything and bring out the family vacation photos and spend 20 minutes I, i'm curious if you've found something for folks who have started to lean into that better and maybe talk about something personally a bit more that's that's helpful as a starting point just to get get some comfort of being able to step into that space a bit
1: sure so the way that you build emotional trust with people uh, particularly in the kind of dynamic hybrid environment that we may see in the future of work is through some form of self-disclosure, active self-disclosure. And sometimes we call it sharing of yourself. And the self-disclosure is truly just revealing your preferences, your aspirations, your Thoughts, your uh, decision making processes, your a bit about your home life, uh, perhaps uh, anything related to your car, your pets. Uh, but it's really showing people who you are, your humanness. And the self disclosure actually it does a couple of things. One is people perceive those who self disclose as more approachable and more likable. Go figure, right? If you self-disclose, people will view you as more approachable and they will like you more. On the other hand, it's important to do mature self-disclosure. I often talk about it in this way, mature self-disclosure, because you never want to say or do things that will make others uncomfortable. Kind of like, you know, my crazy uncle just says whatever, no filter. You can't do that. You don't want people to feel uncomfortable. You also don't want to get into too much information zone, where if you've, you know, uh, had anger management classes, you don't want to come in and say, well, you know, when I was talking to my therapist about my anger, Matt, no, you don't want to do that because that puts people off. (laughs) You've got to think about where are you self-disclosing or what subjects you are covering. I actually spend a good deal of time in the book providing a framework on what you talk about, how you talk about it, and how you ensure that it's reciprocal. Because this mature self-disclosure is truly a leadership imperative because leaders have to earn their people's trust every single day. And this is one of the ways you do it when you're not sharing the same space all of the time.
0: You know such a good practice in the physical world. and and, as you point out in the book and the research, even more important now in the context of the remote world, because we don't have the as many of the opportunities for those things to happen naturally, for the conversation into the conference room or the bump into someone in the hallway. So being more intentional about bringing that in and making that a structured process is just is huge. One of the other things that you invite us to do, and the 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 message in the book is emphasizing individual differences. and i'm I'm curious about this one because, of course, we always hear, let's stay focused on the big picture. We're all on the same team. And in fact, you talked in an earlier part of the book about minimizing differences. And I'm guessing there's some nuance here between minimizing differences overall, but also, emphasizing individual differences. What's significant about that?
1: What's significant about that, particularly in a distributed work environment, we see this in global environments. We even see it in very domestic environments where people are coming together in groups or for work uh, collaboration uh, reasons but they don't share the same geography. What you end up is the natural, but the detrimental aspect of us versus them, uh, where we tend to make others as a homogenous group. Uh, so that it's you know it's all those folks in Boston where I am, they are like this, them, they, this, and the way you disrupt that in a distributed environment is to say actually Sadal uh, has a lot of experience when it comes to this particular field or this area, and so what you're emphasizing the differences that you're emphasizing is to counter tendencies to homogenize people and to truly draw out the assets that they bring to the group, the diversity that they bring to the group. That's why you're emphasizing differences, to break through the us versus them that can naturally form when you have people who don't share the same geographical space.
0: I, I I really found this as a profound message, and I highlighted this line you write in the book, leaders should avoid referring to people by their membership in a subgroup. And it, it really gets to what you just said, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. So it's not those people, they, the us, the them. It's ensuring that everyone understands the potential contributions that each member can make and creating space for that.
0: Yeah. and And highlighting the individual more so than just the group and the subgroup by doing that and being more intentional about that, especially in a remote environment, that begins to then open up the doors, it sounds like, for more engagement, more connection, and people seeing each other as people. And you get away a bit from the, okay, I'm seeing your name on a screen or I'm seeing an icon. It, it really provides that human context that we, again, we might do a little bit more naturally in person, but being really intentional about doing that on the remote standpoint is huge.
1: It is huge. You know, you can think of it as a way to get to know one another more profoundly and more professionally in terms of what people bring, the the, the way in which we are better as a result of that individual's presence, as opposed to becoming a category or, or, or a group based on geography, based on other demographic uh, factors. That's why it's important. You're absolutely right.
0: Another key invitation you have, especially in the remote environment for leaders, is forcing conflict. And I I think most leaders that I've talked to espouse the value of conflict and that they want to have good, healthy conflict in their organizations. Um, and then when it happens, sometimes they get really uncomfortable with that or they tend to jump in or squash it when it when it starts. And and, and what I'm hearing from you and your work is. Not only is this a I don't jump in and try to stop conflict when it's happening, but I'm actually maybe even going a step further in a remote environment of I'm actively really trying to encourage the conflict that needs to happen and be really forward with that. Am, am I hearing you right on that?
1: You're hearing me right on that. And the conflict is oftentimes disagreements related to work tasks or process by which we get our work done. And the disagreements or the conflict allows groups to think about any topic related to tasks or process very deeply so that no one person will dominate with ideas based potentially on tenure and other factors. But that, in fact, when it comes to the work that we do and how do we achieve that work, that we invite contests of ideas so that we get the best ones to surface no matter where it comes from. From among us. So a quick example of this is, per, suppose uh, the group is talking about how to solve a problem and uh, someone makes a suggestion, I think we should do X. So leaders then would say, that's a, a great, thank you for sharing that. How about we come up with several additional ideas to add to this X idea so that we ensure that we're uh, brainstorming and thinking about all the ways we can do this. So this this disagreement this is not necessarily related to the idea that was put forth, but to say, OK, great, what else is there so that we don't anchor on the first idea out of just sheer uh, habit. And so the important thing to remember when you're for- forcing conflict, it's always important to do it around task and process, but never around people. It's not personal. It's related to our ability to come up with the best ideas together.
0: That's a huge distinction. Task and process, not people. Uh, I love that. And and I'm uh, I'm thinking about what you just said, and I suspect there are people listening to this who feel like they do a really good job with that. And in reality, if we sat down and talked with their teams, they would say, hmm, Maybe not so much. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are left unsaid in our conversations. For the person who might be in that place where they kind of feel like they, they get it, they would espouse you know, wanting to have more conflict and, and recognize in a remote environment they need to do that even better. I'm curious if you've seen any indicators that that person might watch for, that might be the indicator that No, maybe I still have a little bit more to do here. Maybe I should be a little bit more bold. Have you seen any common indicators that come up?
1: You know, one of the gifts that we get from remote work and virtuality is the ability to launch anonymous feedback on questions that we want to know. So a very direct and explicit indicator for managers uh, would be to launch a quick uh, anonymous poll and survey. You will know immediately where people stand. In fact, this is a method that many use in a virtual environment. It's much easier to do this than when we're all in person sitting around a conference table, right? So uh, that would be a way that I would try to learn you know talk about the best case scenario when it comes to indicators that's what to, what you can do another option is to actually ask people to just uh, write down either privately or through the chat channel what uh, their thoughts are put it all down and ask for every single person to participate so you can actually force the issues a bit by doing those things
0: Sadal, we've hit about four pages of the book. There's a lot more in the book. And of course, you've got a ton on your website. For those who would like to really uh, get into your work more and, uh, and perhaps do some of the assessment I know you have online, where can they go to find out more?
1: So if you can if you can spell my first name Sadal which has a silent t t s <laughs> e d a l that's the url for my website sadal.com that's my twitter handle at sadal my linkedin handle at sadal and especially on my website, I actually have a number of free resources to help people assess how they're doing in a remote environment that, also provides them some uh, feedback on the things to work on once they complete the questionnaire. There's information there for my free online HarvardX course. Unless you want a certification, it's a free course called Remote Work for Everyone, that uh, is a couple of hours for three weeks that covers everything from how to choose the right digital tools for specific types of work. How do you develop trust? How do you measure performance and productivity? How do you do launches and relaunches to be effective so that you're always aligned and on the same page with your team? So that's available. That information is available on my website. So sadal.com is the place to go.
0: Perfect. We're going to get this all linked up in the weekly leadership guide this week and of course it'll be in the episode notes. Said all one of the questions I often ask people is what they've changed their mind on as they've done their work mm-hmm. and I I have a slightly different version of that question for you. Just thinking <laughs> about the journey you've been on, you've been of course researching this for years and this book While it might seem perfectly timed for COVID, actually, you've been working on for several years and doing the research. And so in the middle of your research and writing this book, of course, we have this global pandemic. I'm, I'm curious, as the pandemic has happened now and we've seen the fallout and we've seen organizations respond in good and bad ways and lots in between, what have you changed your mind on since the pandemic and seen so many of us struggle with this more just in the last year or so?
1: I love that question because there is something, Uh, you know, my orientation is typically positive, forward looking, anyone and everyone can learn anything and everything. And let's move forward. Let's live into the future. That's typically my orientation, but I always Felt that technology or digital tools would be very difficult for everyone to adopt. And that uh, eventually people will learn, and maybe 20, 30, 40% of an organization will learn how to use video conferencing, will learn how to use, you know, internal social media tools. But never in my life had I. Ever imagined that you would have these wholesale digital tools migrations that happened so fast once this global pandemic hit? So, I have changed my mind on how quickly people can learn and adopt technologies when it's truly necessary and when it becomes a lifeline. I've been blown away by that piece. So, I will never, ever underestimate people and technology again.
0: Sadal Neely is the author of Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere. Sadal, thank you so much for your time and your work.
1: Thanks, Dave. It's great to have been with you today.
0: If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety. My guest on that episode was Amy Edmondson. Amy is one of Sedal's colleagues at Harvard and uh, is also mentioned in her book as well because of the critical nature for leaders to understand the principles of psychological safety. And even if your larger organization doesn't yet subscribe to those principles and is leaning in on that. There's a lot that you can do as an individual leader to create and support Safety inside your organization. And as Sadal talks about in her book, a lot of that is so critical in remote work. Episode 404 for details on that. I'd also recommend episode 509 Transitioning to Remote Leadership. My guest on that episode was Tammy Bieland. Tammy's organization, Workplace Less, uh, helps organizations to make the transition to remote leadership. And in that episode, we talked about some of the practical steps you can take uh, in your organization for your team to. Make that transition, what works, what doesn't, and some of the trends that Tammy's seen uh, in the pandemic and post-pandemic world, episode 509 for those details. And then finally, you heard Sadal talk about the dangers of humiliation and why we need to be cautious about that as leaders and making sure we're not in a place where we're allowing or maybe even causing humiliation in our organizations and with our people. We've heard that echoed now again and again in recent episodes. Uh, Most prominently, that was mentioned in episode 529, the way out of major conflict with Amanda Ripley. She talked about the destructive nature of humiliation and a ton of the other research around how we really do cause major conflict and, and cause things really to blow up if we're not careful and if we don't know what the trends are, and all of us are capable of falling into those traps. Episode 529 for a lot more detail. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't yet set up your free membership, I'm inviting you to do that so you can search the entire library by topic. One of the topic areas we have many episodes filed under is remote work. And as you heard Sadal talk about today, yes, many things have changed, of course, since the pandemic. And yet a lot of the research and practices have been very consistent for years, in fact, decades on what works in a remote environment and what doesn't. We've aired many episodes over the years. That's a helpful place to go. Looking in for more details, many other episodes on remote work. If you set up your free membership, you'll be able to search the entire library by any topic including remote work plus you'll get access to all of the free audio courses on the website my own personal library the book notes uh, Sadal's book is in there as well all my highlights and things that I found useful during the reading my interview notes a ton more And of course, access to my weekly leadership guide that comes each week after the episodes with links, resources, and some of the most useful articles, podcasts, and other resources I've been finding online for you during the week that I think will support you in your leadership development. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. And I will see you back next week for our next conversation on leadership. Have a wonderful week and see you back on Monday. Take care, everybody.